Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash, making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it, cause we'll be gone. Over that next horizon. We ain't got no <laughs> Welcome to Escaping Society, episode 15, Herbalism Unplugged, part 2. And don't miss out on the first part of uh, this episode because we name a lot of different plants uh, in a long list, but this episode we're going to talk a little bit more about some of our personal philosophy and some other topics that are associated with herbalism. Uh, my name is Teresa. My name's Gumby. And uh, I realized something the other morning as I was having some coffee, and that is that whether or not you are using herbs currently or you're thinking about it or you're just kind of interested, maybe you think it's really, you know, woo-woo or fluffy or whatever, but virtually everyone uses plant medicine, whether you realize it or not. I was thinking about that as I had my cup of coffee, um, which often contains some form of sugar, which also comes from a plant. And uh, I don't smoke, but if you do, there you go, tobacco, that's your plant medicine. And if you're healthy and you don't drink coffee, eat sugar, or smoke, well, I bet you probably have used coconut oil, and that comes from a plant too. Yeah, so we're all already believers in the power of plants. Um, you know, I'm, I'm used to people kind of rolling their eyes, you know, when they hear about herbalism, or people that go the other way and just are the true believers and aren't critical enough. Um, but yeah, I think that's really interesting how already in our lives we're surrounded by the power of plants. Um, I like to point out to people, you know, we're about to talk a lot about the medicines that plants provide for us. What can plants do for us, the humans? Um, and, you know, we had these 20 plants in the last podcast that we, we highlighted and showcased. Um, with videos to go with it to help you ID, ID these plants. And I highly encourage everybody to get out, get out there with a field guide and start looking up these plants yourself. Um, we'll talk about more about field guides later. Um, but plants offer gifts for a lot of things beyond the human tribe. Um, I like to remind myself as I'm interacting with these plants that they provide animals with food and medicine. I don't think animals distinguish food from medicine. Um, you know, it's just all the same. They eat it and they get the nutritional and medicinal value from these plants. Plants um, offer the landscape things. Um, plants are indicators of wetlands, of dry places that are good to camp. Um, so I like to think about all these things plants do that are not for us because I think it's easy to get caught in that paradigm. You might think you're kind of an alternative person because you're not going with the traditional, and I don't know how modern medicine got considered traditional medicine, <laughs> but how you're not going with the traditional medicine. You're an herbalist, so you're alternative. You're automatically more open to the earth and Gaia and all this new age stuff. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily true. It's really easy to get caught up in that anthropocentrism of what can plants do for me and forget that the plants are already doing something. One of the ways that got pointed out to me that really clicked was years ago, well, I was always taught not to gather plants by a roadside. And the idea behind it was that they were polluted. There was something wrong with these plants. Um, and so you avoided them, which is a good practice, but it was sort of, you know, you looked at these plants as like polluted, as bad in some way. But one herbalist, and I can't remember off the top of my head who said this, but um, she said, let's not gather these plants. They're already busy doing a job. They're purifying the air. They're cleaning the air that all these uh, cars are emitting. Um, I really appreciated that. Um, I like the idea that we 
that there is nothing wrong with these plants, but they're already busy. Um, and so that really helped me think about plants differently and be more thankful for these plants on the roadside rather than just kind of write them off as, you know, polluted, tainted. Um, and so that leads us to gathering. One of the th reasons why I called this herbalism unplugged is I feel like so many things in our culture get co-opted really quickly. They start off as kind of alternative things, as kind of rebellious things against the, the flow of our culture, this really anthropocentric, dominating, um, objectifying way that we interact with our world. Herbalism goes way back. Who knows how far back it goes, but plants have been helping us since way before anybody can remember, way before recorded history, of course. Um, and the way we gather these plants is really important. I feel like kind of the plugged-in form of herbalism, um, as opposed to the herbalism unplugged, is these stores. You get these plants that are already prepared, treated. They're just um, given to you like this plant equals your illness across the board. I call it the magic pill, and I hate plants being treated like that. It's just one more way. We suck the life out of this thing, this beautiful, vibrant, diversified um, subjective entity out there, this plant that has a gift for us. So I would really encourage you to start gathering your own plants. It doesn't mean that you don't consult an herbalist, but form a relationship with this plant. It's a living thing. Um, I've heard, I think it's, I heard this from a Cherokee uh, man that he said when he was younger, he would go out with his grandmother, and his grandmother would show him the medicinal plants. But before they gathered plants, she would have him ideally fast for a day. That's something that comes up a lot in indigenous tribes, and I love this practice. It's a way of cleansing yourself, of purifying yourself. Um, if you've ever gone for a day without food, after the distraction of being hungry, there's this weird level you get into where you kind of feel lighter. You feel more open. Mm -hmm. I also like the sacrifice. Even if you don't get that feeling... You're showing this plant, you're about to give me something. So I'm going to give something in return. I'm going to do without this food. I'm going to put in this effort. It makes it more meaningful. It is a, a beautiful symbol to go without food. So for a day before this man's grandfather or grandmother would take him out to gather these plants, she'd say, don't eat anything. Drink a lot of water. She was encouraging him to sympathize with these plants, empathize with them to get into their world. The plants are, are so tied into the water. So she encouraged him, drink water, drink water, you know, feel what the plants are feeling, the, the, the nourishment you derive from the water, the sacredness of the water. Water is life. Try to feel that. And for this day before we gather, don't think any bad thoughts about anyone. Oh my God, if you tried to go for a whole day without thinking bad thoughts about somebody, but the effort, the practice, it reminds me of the story I told in Herbalism Unplugged Part 1, the Cherokee plant medicine story. When people are just destroying the world and the animals are declaring war against us to stop us, to stop our madness. But the plants, even then, even as they're being exploited and destroyed, are saying, we're going to offer gifts. We're going to counteract all the illnesses you're battling the humans with. We still believe in the humans. So I love that this grandmother thinks that part of the way to empathize with these plants is not to think any bad thoughts. Because that, that, to me, sounds so true to that spirit of the plant medicine story, that they don't have any ill will. They don't have bad things to say about people. I don't know that. Um, I wish I was a, a keen communicator with plants that I could personally say, yeah, I've, I've interacted with them enough to know that. But I love that idea. And I feel that from some of these plants and the gifts they offer. Um, yeah. Did you want to jump in? I, yeah, I was going to add what a beautiful gift that already is if you're practicing having positive thoughts for a whole day because you're wanting to interact with the plants on a more empathic or sympathetic level. Well, wow. What I mean, that right there could really help your mood and, and have other physical effects of just thinking more positively. Yeah, and let me say I don't actually do this. I'm not going to say when I gather plants that I spend the day ahead of time doing any of this stuff. Um, but I think it's a beautiful practice, and <laughs> even as I'm saying, like, I hope to one day, you know, get to a point where I'm doing this, I there's a little voice in my head that's like, well, what the hell are you waiting for? <laughs> Why are you saying one day? I don't know. 
bad habit, but it's a, it is a beautiful practice. And just the, the effort, the world that puts you in, as Teresa was saying, what it does to your mind to, to put this effort in, your healing has already begun. It's not about this isolated chemical compound from the freaking plant like the scientists tell us, you know, like, oh, you don't need to interact with the plant. We've put it in pill form for your convenience. Um, so the relationship with the plant, I think, is all important, and that's got a lot to do with the gathering. Mm-hmm. And also when you gather, um, we actually do this, and we have taught it uh, or modeled it uh, when we're teaching summer camps and we're having the kids either pick some uh, some branches or something from a red cedar um, or maybe take some plantain so that they can uh, help a bug bite. But asking the plant and talking to the plant and making sure that you're um, picking it with, uh, with awareness and not just pulling something from the plant and possibly harming it or killing the plant. Gumby, did you want to talk more about that? Yeah, um talking to plants. I mentioned that in one of our YouTube videos. Um, we're reading Carlos Castaneda, The Teachings of Don Juan, and that's something that came up in that book, in, in the, the teachings from the Yaqui way of knowledge. Um, he tells Carlos, talk to the plants. Talk to them out loud. You know, not just a symbolic, like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm asking in my heart. No, say it out loud. And I heard that years ago, and according to the books, Carlos said he could never bring himself to talk out loud to the plants. And I remember when I first read that, it was like, I can't do that either. You know, it's, it feels humiliating, like, to talk to a plant. I've sat with this idea over the years, and uh, I've begun to force myself to talk to the plants a lot more. And I find, just like anything else, it becomes easier the more I do it. Um, I've still got a long ways to go. Because, of course, if you want, really want to interact with the plants, you can't just talk to them any more than if you have a human being around you and you want to have a good relationship. You don't just talk. you got to balance it with listening, really listening, being open, getting out of yourself for a minute. Um, so this conversation with the plants, I've thought about the benefits of talking to them. One, why does it feel embarrassing? Well, because we're taught that everything is dead. The only thing worth talking to is another human being. Everything else is this dead, stupid thing, and you're wasting your time, and you're childish, and it's just a ridiculous thing to do. You don't want other people looking at you like, oh my God, look at this hippie flake. Oh, please, he's talking to the plants. But over the years, I've come to see my culture as stark, raving, mad as a bunch of freaking imbeciles. I mean, look at what we're doing to the world. These aren't people that I, I consider my peers, that I want to like let their judgment affect my actions. Because when I look at what they approve of, when I mean the culture at large, and what they disapprove of, screw that. They're completely off base. They're wrong. So I'm going to talk to these plants. So let's get at that off the table. The embarrassment of being caught talking to plants, I feel like kids are going to get it. Kids do get it. When I'm around kids and I talk to plants, they like it, whether they understand it, whether they talk to plants themselves. They sure aren't put off by it. I think it starts to teach them something very valuable. Another thing is the arrogance. When you bring up that embarrassment, when you talk to plants, you're bringing up your own arrogance. And oh my God, if you really are asking these plants for something, for a gift, what better first thing to work on? The gathering is a big part of the healing. So unplug from that herbal store bullshit paradigm. Start forming this relationship. When you go gather, prepare. Maybe you just make a little ceremony in the beginning like you drink some water. You know, you don't, you're not ready for the whole day thing. Maybe you are. I mean, who can't do a whole day of, like, fasting, not eating, drinking water, and trying to think good thoughts? But as close as you can come, and then when you gather, talk to them. Work on that arrogance. When it comes up and you feel embarrassed, keep talking to them. You're asking for something. So whether you believe the plants actually listen to you or not, or whether it makes any damn difference or you're wasting your breath, let's face it, you waste your breath doing a lot more lame crap than that. You waste your <laughs> breath when you masturbate watching internet porn. You waste your breath when you go to the gym working on your fat ass and then go home and eat a bunch of donuts. I mean, <laughs> your breath is not so precious to you that you can't waste it talking to plants, especially if it's working on something so important as reminding yourself that these plants have gifts to give, gifts to share, and that you are not better than them. You don't go to somebody and ask for something in a superior way. Like, you know, you don't act like old Massa going out to the slave cabin to ask for some, like, beautiful thing only the slave could make. 
like it's trash, like they're trash. I mean, that's screwed up. So I don't do that to the plants either. Um, and interestingly enough, you know, I often contrast this with um, science, you know, this cold clinical crap that science teaches us about isolating compounds and, you know, you can just dry this and put it in a fit pill and it works just as well. And yet we're somehow not addressing any of the things that really need to be healed. But interestingly here, science actually supports this. There have been scientific study after scientific study about the power of certain kinds of music played around plants and particularly talking to plants. It's been shown with all these fancy little gadgets we love so much and put all of our faith in, even they are noticing a difference in the plants. So also consider that, you know, if you really want your, your medicine to work, you're asking for something. You didn't make that medicine. That's why you're having to go out and gather it or go to the store and buy it. So humble yourself. Ask for it. Um, yeah, do you have anything else to say? I feel like I could just talk about talking <laughs> to plants. I mean, there, there's a lot about that. Um, let's see. I do it, and I feel like when I, whenever I take like a, a leaf from milkweed or whenever I gather some blueberries, we just had blueberries the other day on the top of a mountain. What else did we have recently? Mm-hmm. Cherries. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I thank the plant, and I take a moment, and we, we showed this in the video, and I think we've probably talked about it before, but you just take a moment and feel in your in your gut, like in your abdomen, like, is this the right leaf? Is this, is this the right choice? And if it is, maybe you'll feel something. Maybe you won't feel anything if it's the right choice. But if it's not, then maybe you'll feel like a tightening or kind of a sick, queasy feeling. And that's the plant communicating with you. And I swear this has happened to me. And time and again, if I ignore it and I try, like I try to force my will, the plant will not give me whatever I'm trying to take. Either I'll lose the berry somewhere or the plant won't give me the leaf. It's just, it's crazy. Um, And that's really all the rest I have to say about that. Yeah, and we talked about red cedar as one of our plants in the last podcast, um, first part of Herbalism Unplugged. And actually, this is a way I teach kids to start talking to plants is we'll make a smudge stick. And I was just learning that apparently this is one of those things, what do you call it when you steal something from a culture? Uh, Appropriation. appropriation, So there's a concern around smudge, too, which I didn't realize. Um, My own feeling on that is if there's something that works, I consider some of these things like smudge to be the same as survival skills. So if I need to start a fire, I don't overly worry about whether I'm using the Apache way of starting a fire or the Cherokee way of starting a fire. I need a fire and I use what works. And I think the practical mindset is the essence of survival um, to an indigenous tribe. I see smudge in the same vein. I don't feel like I'm stealing something from another culture. I'm not pretending to be something I'm not. I am trying to be open and respectful to both the cultures that can teach me more about this and especially the plant that I'm interacting with. Mm -hmm. So with that said about smudge, I encourage kids when we make a smudge stick to go to the red cedar tree and ask. And it is beautiful to see right off the bat privileged kids, middle class, upper class kids that have never been exposed to an idea of like, you know, anything having sentience other than a human. Everything is just a natural resource to be used for the human. Um, Even those kids, they'll go out and when I tell them, ask for a leaf, if you feel something. Sometimes for me, it's like a tightness in my stomach. It can be a kind of a push away, like a magnetic push. It can be a cold feeling, but you'll feel something if it's a no, it's a subtle thing. And you'll feel something if it's a yes. These kids will do that. I've seen so many kids go up and I'll see them pick a leaf. Well, not pick it, but hold it. And I'll see them ask it and then they'll move on. You know, it wasn't the right one. So for me, working with kids, um, If you know how to do a smudge stick, if you know how to make a smudge stick, anything that simple can get kids interacting and talking to plants. And uh, like I said, I've got a lot to say about talking to plants. I don't want to get too bogged down here. But when you start talking to plants, you start talking to everything. Plants, like everything else, is a gateway to so much more. So by talking to plants, by seeing the life in plants, how much easier is it to see the life in the animals that share so many more characteristics with us? The two eyes, the five digits, you know, the whole nine yards. And then if you can empathize with a plant as a living 
being equal to yourself. Imagine the doors that opens to all the other spirits of the earth and imagine the way you begin to treat the world. So talking to plants, I don't take that lightly. I think that's one of the most important things that I'm going to say in this podcast is to encourage people to start talking to plants. Um, it opens the door to a whole different way of interacting with the world. And if you think healing is just an isolated thing that's not in relation to the plants, and I know I'm kicking a dead horse here, Mm. I mean, I just can't strongly encourage you enough to form that relationship with the plants. Um, If there's somebody that I'm around that doesn't talk English, it doesn't mean I ignore them and treat them like an inanimate object. I try to communicate with them in some way to show them that I respect them. Same could be said with plants. All right, Teresa. Oh, you're going. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I ain't done here yet. All right. Now, I want to talk about my disillusionment. I used to to um, study with a lot of herbalists about plant medicine, and along the way, I kind of got out of it. And I want to talk a little bit about why. Um, Hippocrates, who's considered one of the fathers of modern medicine... He said, let your food be your medicine and your medicine be your food. And I think that's the essence of herbalism. So I got into foraging big time because what I started realizing is most of the time, I think nature gives you what you need in the edible plants for medicines. For instance, in the springtime, during the winter, you've been sedentary. You're sitting around. You're eating a lot of fatty foods. You you tend to eat a lot of meat. You tend to eat a lot of starches. Things get built up in you. In the spring, almost all the little plants that come up that you want to put in your wild salad, those first tender young green things, are diuretics. They make you piss. They make you sweat. They flush out your body. You don't need to be an herbalist. You just need to interact with the plants. Hmm. You just need to live on the land. That's the natural niche for the human animal is to be connected with the land in that way. The medicine's already there. Now, I think there are some, like we talked about, In the last episode, those 20 plants, the ones that I added to the list, I can definitely say they're ones that I think of as having something a little extra special. They're ones that I go to um, that I wouldn't just naturally use in that way. But one of the things that I got turned off to is that I would take these classes and immediately, and I did the same damn thing. I started learning the plants, and then I started teaching classes. Now, I thought I was coming from a good place. I was excited. But think about what that does to the practice of herbalism. In indigenous tribes, this is something that gets trained and apprenticed for years. It's a sacred, spiritual, deep thing that you develop a relationship with these plants. They don't just tell you, oh, mint's good for a headache. They tell you you need to know the plant. You need to know this mint plant as opposed to that mint plant, where it grows, what time of day, what time of year. When's it the strongest? I mean, it gets really deep. And then you need to ask it because the power isn't just in the plant. The power is what the plant gives you, not what you take. So I started realizing, at least for my way of looking at it, that this plant medicine stuff was the herbalism plugged in. It's the co-opting of an ancient practice. Um, It's the making money. It's turning plants into money, turning the life into death, which is a common theme in our culture. One more way of turning life into death, and I got turned off to it. Um, This whole magic pill approach. You can live however you want to um, and just take this magic pill. Go take this plant. Ooh, voila, ginseng. It's just going to improve your energy. Eat what the hell you want. Don't change anything else. It's not that simple, people. Our lifestyles are killing us. The plants aren't going to save us from that. And to ask that of them, to treat them like that, is just abysmally disrespectful. Um, I like what Gandhi said. I I read some of Gandhi's writings a while back. I got curious about him because he's such an inspiring man. And I was shocked about the things people don't talk about that Gandhi believed. One of the things he said in one of his essays is, if you're a lawyer or a doctor, find a job that will actually be helpful to the world. Give it up. (laughs) Now, I got curious about that, and I read on, especially the doctor part. He saw doctors as enablers, Mm. the whole magic pill approach, the same thing we do to herbs. Live however you want, go to the doctor, he'll patch you up, and then you go right back to the same destructive life that made you feel like you needed a doctor in the first place. It doesn't work like that, people. Look around. You you can look at it in your own life, all the people around you. Um, We're rotting. We're rotting spiritually. We're rotting physically. The healing is not this magic pill. And 
I really loved Gandhi a lot more after that. I, I saw a lot more in Gandhi's teachings that I uh, resonated with and I understood before. Um, another thing that was missing from the herbalist classes I took was the animism. There was a respect for plants, definitely. One might even say a reverence. But there was also a feeling of superiority. There was always this kind of like, what can plants do for us? For me, anyway, I wanted to... I don't know. I wanted more animism. I wanted more that I'm in this magical world of equal beings and that they don't just like have to give me these gifts, that I have to ask for them because these gifts are offered. Um, there wasn't enough about my relationship with these plants. And a teacher couldn't ta- teach me that, to be fair. Uh, I don't want to. I learned a lot from teachers, so I don't want to beat up my teachers too much about that. That was something I had to go out and learn. But it definitely veered me away from medicinal plants. So. That's one of the reasons why I've got that list of 20. I believe in it. They do special things for me. And by the way, try them out and see what they do for you. I really believe that it's not an equal sign between plant medicine and the person. You've got to see what your relationship is with that plant. And I encourage you back to the gathering. That's one of the ways you start the conversation. Um, anything I'm leaving out of that? We were we were talking the other day about what well, I was mentioning it's kind of like making a chart. Um, it's a shortcut from thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years of personal experience and relationship with the world to put a list of plants and then what they do right next to it and then just refer to it like, oh, if you have a cold, take this. If you have, you know, whatever, a rash, do this or a burn or, or bug bite. And we did that in like the the previous part of this part one. We kind of shared our experience, but like Gumby says, it really is the relationship that you have with the plant. Maybe it doesn't work for you, and maybe that's based on your relationship or, or lack of with the plant. Yeah, I feel like we risked oversimplification with our introduction to the plants in the last podcast, but that could be a necessary part of it. I mean, that's, I feel like, what kind of fosters your interest, hopefully. And then the relationship can follow as long as you, you know, follow a respectful path. Because what got me interested in the plants in the first place, why I formed a relationship with them, was exactly that. Somebody said, oh, this could help you with this. This is edible. And uh, through that, I got to see the plant as an individual. Um, I find that's true with identification, too, a lot of times. Like, somebody might ask me, how do you recognize jewelweed? I can sort of give you some things to look for, but after a while, you know, I'm not looking at those things anymore. I recognize the personality of it. Just like if I first meet, you know, this guy Bob, you know, he's got big Buddy Holly glasses and jet black hair. I might say, oh, I look for the guy with Buddy Holly glasses and jet black hair. But after a while, if I really get to know Bob, I can tell Bob sitting down facing away from me. I can tell him by his posture. Sometimes I can even tell Bob's in the room before I open the door. Bob has a presence, and that's what plants end up representing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was, I was actually going to mention that a little bit later, um, but but first, <laughs> Gumby... But now. But, and now, for something different, um, Gumby had listed the words hot slash cold, wet slash dry, and I asked him, what in the world does that mean? Because the only thing that it brought to mind to me was uh, some very general broad studies like basic knowledge of ayurveda which is a an ancient indian uh, study of food as medicine hot and wet brings things to mind for me uh, so um along with the plant personality just like what gumby was talking about like the presence of the plant there's also like qualities and characteristics of plants and i'll let gumby go into more detail on that but thinking about how that plant is like is it a plant that is hot is it a plant that is wet (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh gumby (laughs) well um i hope i get her name right betsy bancroft she's an herbalist i met in tom brown's tracking nature and wilderness survival school and then i was lucky enough to take a class with her in the north carolina mountains um and she introduced me to this Teresa tells me the same things taught in ayurvedic ayurvedic ayurveda ayurveda teachings Mm -hmm. But the hot, cold, wet, dry thing. So if you have an illness, ask yourself, does it feel more hot or cold? Um, God, I'm trying to think of a good example of a cold illness. Well, you could have a cold, cold, and you could also have a hot, cold. 
you can also have a dry cold or a wet cold, depending on just maybe the season, like in the summertime, you might have a hot cold mm-hmm. and it's disgusting. Yeah. And a cough is a good example. Like you cough, a lot of us have experienced the difference between a dry cough that you just hack and hack and hack, nothing comes up, your throat gets really sore, dry, you can barely talk. And a wet cough where you're coughing up phlegm, it's like <laughs> spits going everywhere, your nose is running. Um, and you know, ask yourself if it's say a hot cough, is it what is it, dry or well I was saying dry or wet, right? Mm-hmm. Hot or cold. So, you know, I find often when a cold's coming on, I'll feel more hot. When it's on its way out, my nose will be running, it'll feel more cold. Um, you know, my body feels colder. Consider the plant. So even if you don't know much about the plant, um, obviously you want to rule out the poisonous plants. Get to know poison hemlock and water hemlock. <laughs> um, before you go gathering plants or using any plants, make sure you know these two. Poison hemlock, water hemlock. These are the two that will absolutely kill you if you get them wrong. Everything else, you get it wrong, you will probably survive. I mean, you might have a horrible time of it. Um, But those two, definitely know those two before you start experimenting with plants. Um, Damn, what was I talking about? You were talking about, like, a cough, whether it's a wet, phlegmy cough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... (laughs) Um, like chickweed, for instance, that's not something I consider a medicinal plant, but I consider it very wet and cooling, wet, cold. So if I have a hot, dry cough, I might just start eating some chickweed and see what happens. Hmm. You know, that's an example of how you could use that. Um, mint, another cool, I consider it a wet plant. Um, but yeah, when you just start thinking in terms of this thing, see if it helps you. It's a little bit of a guide to go with your knowledge of plants. Um, I find things like that help me sort of think of the broad strokes of herbalism more than having to know every species, which, of course, you eventually want to know. And then, as I'm saying, even beyond the species, the individuals. Um, but, yeah, let that be a guide. See see how that works for you. At least consider that. Yeah, it's, it's just another level of getting to know the plant. And you could study one plant your whole life and you'd probably learn so much from that one plant. And this is just another level of getting to know the plant, um, taking a nibble of it, even, you know, nibble and spit it out if you if you need to. But it's, it's like if you go to like a wine tasting or something, feel what it does, like feel the nuances of the plant. And within that, there could be a secret medicine. Yeah, another thing that, that's kind of fun to consider is the doctrine of signatures. Um, Some people believe that a plant will look like what it treats. Um, Plants that are good for blood will tend to, like, be red or or purple or in some way remind you of blood. A plant that's good for your mind might somehow resemble, like, cauliflower, you know. Um, Like a walnut looks like a brain and it's supposedly good for your brain or something. Yeah, can you think of anything else right off the top of your head that would be an example of the Doctrine of Signatures? Um, I mean... I think, and again, this is off the top of my head, um, I think something like kidney beans are good for your kidneys in some way. They're like a diuretic. Yeah, again, so this isn't something I actually use. I don't put a lot of credit in, but it is kind of a fun way to just, like, start looking at the plants. Um, You know, like, I feel like it helps you, again, form the relationship, which is the important thing. Just by looking at it, just by considering it, taking the time to look and playfully like let your imagination go over this plant. Consider and ask it, are you good for that? See what it feels like. And then, before you go experimenting with it, confirm it. You know, Look it up in your field guide. See if it seems like something that's safe to try. And then, within that, see if it has something for you. Um, so yeah, the doctrine of signatures and... Oh, you're going to talk about taxonomy? I was basically just going to introduce it because um, my experience is I learn better when I interact with the plant in person. And maybe I could have the field guide with me and we'll, we'll get to field guides in just a minute. But I've been on plant walks and I've foraged uh, for, for wild edible foods as well as some medicinals. And I just feel like what Gumby was talking about earlier, you get to know the personality of it. I really, um, I respect the plant. I respect its different characteristics, qualities, but I just don't feel like 
memorizing all these names and everything. I, I just feel like I want to touch the plant. I want to smell the plant. I want to feel the plant and be in its presence more than learning the names. But sometimes that helps people too. And I find it very healing just to start thinking of plants in this way because when I take a walk, I'm surrounded by friends. Mm -hmm. um, that in itself, I mean, is a very healing thing. Um, so I want to talk about some books that I found really helpful for this. Um, did you have something? Oh, yeah, one other thing. Um, something, I guess, another negative or con to the taxonomy um, botanical study of plants, if you're if you're just going to be very scientific about it, is I feel like it puts up walls for a lot of people. This was medicine that has been studied for thousands upon thousands of years by our ancestors, and they didn't have a laboratory. They didn't have books and charts. And if they did, they were very rudimentary, like their own experiences. And that was all that mattered because that really is all that matters. So I would say, don't let it be so daunting to get into the study of plants. If it helps you, that's fantastic. If it doesn't and it confounds you and it keeps you from going outside and enjoying the presence of plants, just discard it. Maybe you'll pick it up later in life or maybe you won't, but I would say just really try to get to know the plants. And now Gumby's going to talk about books. <laughs> uh, thanks for that segue. You're so welcome. books are good and stuff. Um, <laughs> but seriously, what I found is I've taken a lot of classes with herbalists and I've seen repeat students. And there's the kind of student that never seems to learn much. They always defer to the teacher. And then there's the other kind of student that quickly seems to become a teacher themselves. And again, I voiced a uh, concern with that, that maybe we're too quick to do that. But one thing that I have noticed is the ones that become teachers themselves um, own that knowledge. It feels like I'm learning this. I feel confident with it. I don't feel like there's the teacher and me. I start feeling like the teacher because like, I feel confident in what I'm learning. Those are the people that are using the books. Over and over I see this. Um, there's Facebook websites and pages that you can like learn about plants. I don't like these shortcuts. If you're desperate, if you used all your other resources, all right, use it. But I feel like these shortcuts are not helping people learn. When you take a physical book and have to leaf through it and take the time, there are no shortcuts to this shit. It takes time. Look through the field guide. Try to find it. See if it's right. See what else to consider. Uh, go back to the plant. You know, like see between these three that it could be, which one it looks the most like. And then check another book. It is frustrating in the beginning. I mean, we're all so busy, you know, and like, oh, is it, are you going to be, be able to make money with this knowledge? That's a big motivator, right? Um, no, but you might not need money if you get knowledge like this. So use those books. It, it will help you own that knowledge. It will help you feel like you have a relationship with that plant and feel confident. And then if you go on a plant walk, you're really going to learn from the teacher because you're already, you're not expecting the teacher to do all your homework. You're doing your homework. And then the teacher will help you out and add to that in a big way. So I think both of those together are powerful. Teacher, books. But like, like Teresa said, there is a warning with the books. Don't get so caught up in the books that that is, becomes a barrier. you got to be careful with them. Use them. Transcend them. Um, oh, I have something else to add to yeah. that. Shoot. Um, and I forgot. Yeah. Um, so what I was going to say was if you are absolutely a book person or you want to just try it out, there are ways to interact with a plant on a, on a much more detailed level. What was it? Some sort of tree guide? That small little tree guide that you got for like Winter Tree cents. Finder. I can't remember who wrote it. Uh, it's a Mary... Um, yeah, a woman. She, she also wrote the original, like the forested landscape of the United States. Really? She wrote that same one? Yeah, Mary Teal... Yeah, Teal Garden, Garden or something. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, Gumby got this book from me. It was, what, like less than a dollar on Amazon. It, and it's so cool because in the winter months, this is for trees, but you could probably find for other things too, um, for different times of year and, and different regions. But you can learn so many details about trees. Oh my gosh. I didn't, I had never seen, what are they called? The, the bud scars? Mm -hmm. 
And then there's like different shapes from where the leaf fell off and the bud scars. Oh my gosh, there's so much detail. And by looking at that, how much more detailed and wondrous and nuanced your world becomes by taking the time to look that closely. Yeah, so I will say that books can do that. They can open up different ways to interact with the plant. I just don't want to get caught up in the like Latin names and nomenclature for everything. Yeah. And again, everything's a mixed bag. Like Latin names can help. Um, so you don't get caught in colloquial terms that can change from region to region. So here's some books. Um, I think I got four here that I wanted to talk about. There are a lot of books on medicinal plants, but I have not, personally, I have not liked most of them. When it comes to medicinal plants, I tend to go at it more through the edible plants and then kind of build from there. Um, Botany in a Day by Thomas J. L. Pell is my favorite. He's got a quick little like lesson in the beginning about botany, the history of plants. Um, and then he's got a recommendation of how to use his book like a workbook to study six families. And these are families that will be well represented in your area in all likelihood. Um, and then he's just got these broad strokes of like each family is headed by a little description of, you know, this, this you'll find this kind of medicine quite a bit in this family group. By learning families, my learning picked up so much. And it felt like I wasn't learning at first. This is the way it is with me and plants. I don't feel like I'm learning at first. I'll read a book. I don't feel like if you ask me, did you learn anything? I'll, eh, it was kind of dry. But then I'll start noticing like a plant. And just off the top of my head, I'll be like, that looks like it's in the mint family. Mm. And then after a while, I'll start learning why I thought it was in the mint family. You know, I'll look at those field marks, those characteristics. But that book was hugely helpful, and it's got, like, information in the back about, like, colors of flowers, what they tend to be good for as far as what they treat. I mean, just a lot of things that give you directions to start interacting with these plants. So Botany in a Day by Tom Thomas J. L. Pell. I'm a big um, fan of Peterson Field Guide. I like the drawings over the photographs of, like, an Audubon Field Guide, and this is for most things, from birds to whatever. Um... So once again, Peterson Field Guide, the drawing, they can emphasize the field marks. They can really emphasize that thing you need to look at that makes it this plant and not the other plant that looks a lot like it. Mm. So Peterson Field Guide to Wildflowers, just getting to know your plants. Great book. Um, It's color-coded, so the the best time to use it is spring, summer when the flowers are out. Um, But once you get to know the plant, you start being able to recognize it other times of year Mm because you start looking at leaves, personality, um, all kinds of things. So Peterson Field Guide to Wildflowers, whether you are a forager or an herbalist or both, is a great primer. Um, And following that up with Peterson Field Guide to Medicinal Plants. I feel like, I don't know where their sources are, how critical they were of what plant equals what as far as treating medicine. It feels like one of those kind of fluffy, overarching sort of, uh, you know, this plant's good for this and for everybody, and let's just not pay attention to all the details that could make that plant good for this one person at this one time. Hmm. Um, But I still found the book helpful. It gave me things to try. Um, Yeah, most of what I learned from actually plants that I use is from experience, um, mostly picked up from teachers. Now, out of all the books that I'm recommending, this one is the one that I've tried the most plants in the way he said to use them and have adopted many of these practices, and that's Tom Brown's Field Guide to Wild, Edible, and Medicinal Plants. I love his setup of the book. It doesn't cover a lot of bo- a lot of plants. Um, I think maybe 50? I could be way off, because now 50 sounds like a lot of plants when I say it. But anyway... Um, And it's not great for ID. Like, you better have another field guide, like the Wildflower, Peterson Field Guide to Wildflower, to go find out what these plants are if you're not already familiar. But I love that he talks about different aspects of the plant. He starts off with a personal story, each chapter of this plant. So how he met the plant. And there's reverence in this story. Like, he was taught mostly by an Apache elder, sometimes by another elder in his community. Like, I remember Dandelion was taught from someone else. Um, but he tells his story about meeting this plant in this reverential way, and he talks about its personality. So there's a lot of animism in this book. I love that. Then he talks about how he uses it edibly, how he uses it medicinally, and sometimes things like crafts, like how to make glue. I remember uh, pine. There's a way to treat that. I've never done this, but you can boil it down and make a really powerful cleansing agent. 
makes sense for my um, interaction with pine. I believe that it has that power. I have not experimented with it, but a lot of the other things, like how to use plantain, how to use yarrow, um, it really helped me along. So I highly recommend that book. Mm-hmm. Jeez, I feel like there was something else I was going to add to that too. Oh, I know something that happened to me that was kind of cool. This is yours. Um, the first plant walk that I went on, I really had absolutely no idea. I was the bad student that Gumby was referring to. He doesn't ever use good and bad. But <laughs> um, I didn't have field guides. I didn't study. I just showed up for the walk, and I maybe knew about a dandelion in my yard, but I didn't know you could use it for anything. It was just a yellow flower. So I'm on this walk, and we had been introduced to a number of plants. I mean, overload, like 80 plants all in one walk in the mountains of North Carolina. But when we were headed back to our car, the leader of the the hike, he was like, Teresa, do you know what this plant is? And it's on the side of the road. It's in a ditch. And I don't know. I mean, we were just in walking in the woods for three days. I don't know what this plant is, but something just made me say, Doc. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, that's what it is. Do you know what kind of Doc? And I was like, yellow. And it can often have a yellow color, but I didn't know any better to look for that. I didn't even know that was a choice. So sometimes it's almost like if you're open, well, I think it usually is. The more you're open, the more you can like absorb and communicate, even if you're not even trying. Yeah, that reminds me of two things tied into that. One is um, one of the powers of using a field guide is you leaf through all these plants by trying to find your one plant, even if you don't find it at the end, by trying to find it. You've learned about families. You've looked at pictures that are getting imprinted on your brain. And that's when you start having a lot of these experiences like, I just know what this plant is. (laughs) Never looked it up before. But I think field guides really help promote that. They sneak into your memory. Um And something Tom Brown recommends is to try asking the plant, like he's another teacher that talks about talking to plants. Um, And like asking the plant, are you a medicine? Do you have a medicine to offer me? What part of my body do you treat? And paying attention and seeing if you feel something in a Mm -hmm. part of your body. And then, you know, he says, don't just go use it. Then go look it up. Go do your research. You know, like... And I love that practice. I have not done that nearly enough. Um, God, but if I had kids to spend more time with and teach them in a more long-term way, man, I would be doing that like every plant we learn. <laughs> God, I forgot to do that this summer. I should have. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I love that he's, he's saying, ask the plant. Your body knows. The plant knows. This is how people learn plants for millennia. But don't get so carried away because the fact is you're a child of this culture. These things have atrophied in you. So research afterwards. Don't get yourself into trouble. Um, you're just learning how to use these legs. You've never used them before. Talking to the world around you, the non-human world. So they're going to be wobbly and, you know, double check it. But, yeah, what a practice. <clears throat> so now, again, segue. Um, in the first part of Herbalism Unplugged, we had a list of plants, and that list could have very easily been doubled or even tripled with my brushes with other experiences using plant medicine. But I feel like, so we'll get a little bit more into talking about tinctures and all that probably in just a minute, but I've used tinctures before of plants that weren't on the list from last episode. And I'll be honest with you, I think the only thing I felt was a little bit of a buzz from the high alcohol content of the tincture. And so I guess where I'm going with that is it takes more than just isolating the compound from the plant. It isn't just, even with a tincture, where the plant has sat in it whole, you're taking it out of its environment. You're taking away your relationship and the communication with the plant. I've heard stories about how Um, they've isolated a chemical in a plant and turned it into a medicine. Most of our medicines come from isolated chemicals, by the way. Aspirin. Um, Yeah, things derived from plants. Um, But that they have, it'll have such a harmful effect on the body, the dosage gets all screwed up. You're isolating this chemical, so now you've turned it into this, like, very targeted, uh, one-dimensional 
type of force, energy. You're putting it in your body, and often you need to take another medicine to balance the effect of this first medicine. Mm. I've heard so many stories where they go back to the plant and discover that that same chemical of the medicine they had to create to treat it was already in the plant. Mm -hmm. That it's this beautiful complexity in this plant. And like I said, even the exercise of going outside. Let's say you're taking a plant because you're deeply depressed. My God, a half-hour walk outside looking for a plant on a pretty day? I mean, you're already treating yourself. Find the plant or not. So, yeah, these isolated chemicals, I believe it's just a dead path. It's the completely wrong track. Um, was there something you wanted to add to that? I feel like I cut you off. No, I was just saying, like, with the with the medicine that you can buy, like that magic pill on the shelf of Whole Foods or your local co-op market... If you've tried something and you're kind of like, yeah, but it didn't really do anything for me. Maybe it was like we talked Your about. Your voice broke. Well, maybe that was how somebody else sounds. You're going to hit puberty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> cool. So, so maybe there's an herb for that. But um, if you've tried a tincture or some other like magic pill from the store and you didn't get a result or you didn't feel like it did what it was supposed to do, maybe it's from the lack of relationship with the plant because... If you're not with a living plant or you, you're not like feeling it or experiencing it for yourself in some way, you're, you're missing a vast portion of its medicine. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's what I wanted to say. Oh, and I thought of one plant that didn't make the list last week that I, I if I'm talking about medicinal plants, i got to talk about this one, willow, uh, oh, the yeah. Salix genus. Um, what is it, the Asper? Ah, oh, crap, any other time I'd know... Salicylic acid. Mm. So when you take a twig from a willow tree that are growing in wetlands all over the place and you chew on it, it tastes just like a freaking aspirin. And it's the same thing. That's the isolated compound from willow is the salicylic acid that makes aspirin. Um, and it is a great pain reliever. Another one, God, just going to, oh man, I'm brainstorming. How did I not think about these last week? Is uh, Johnny Jump Ups. They're oh, also yes. mild analgesics. So these little, beautiful little flowers that are delicious, by the way. That's one of the reasons I didn't think about it, is I think of it as an edible plant. But also, it has a mild analgesic. It's a mild painkiller. Um, so yeah, I don't want to dwell on those because we already did our list of plants, but great plants. Oh. Um, and another thing that comes up with herbalism is, what do we want? We want healing. Now, we are living in extraordinary circumstances in an unprecedented time, at least as far as we know, where things are different than, let's say, a baseline, something that's sustainable, that's by its nature lasted a long time because it is sustainable. We're living in a culture that's crashing down around us for many reasons, and one of the prime ones is overpopulation. Um, So I think we need to think about If we want healing, this is another thing that makes me think about uh, the plants for us. That would mean they're sort of like our taskmasters, our slaves. This plant gives us a cure for a headache because we all need to be cured from a headache. Maybe it cures cancer because we should not have cancer. It should not exist. On a planet this out of balance, where humans are overrunning the globe, the population is huge, and then the ways we choose to live make it so much bigger. When does the healing for the earth come into the conversation? Um, For instance, if we got a cure for cancer, and I have a hard time talking with this about people because we've all known people that have cancer. (laughs) We want them to be cured. Talking about this with people. Huh? You said it backwards, I think. It's okay. Go ahead. No, talking about this with people. I have a hard time talking about this with people (laughs) because, like, if I talk about cancer might serve a purpose... It's a hard thing to hear. My dad died of cancer. Um, so just to think like, oh, people need to die. That's so callous. That's so cold-hearted. I personally believe there's a bigger picture, and it's not cold-hearted. It's it's nature. It's the ecosystem. The fire burns through everything. I don't think humans alone have value. And when I start thinking like that, I wonder when the healing for the plants and the animals, uh, the rest of the earth, comes into play. So... I'm careful about how I ask plants now. If I want a cure for a headache, you know, and I think I know a plant that'll help, I'll ask it. But I wonder when we need to start thinking about a bigger healing that might not involve all of us being cured 
from all the illnesses that we suffer. Maybe the illnesses sometimes are the cure. Um, plagues, some of these things that are happening to us. Look what happens every time we beat an illness, that we come up with an antidote. Another one takes its place. Is that accidental? If you believe in God, would he just be that redundant for no reason? If you believe in nature, why would that keep happening? There's a niche that obviously is trying to be filled there, and that niche helps control our population. That, that type of thing wouldn't happen in nature. It would be balanced. Yeah, it wouldn't get this big. We have definitely like tipped things out of balance, and part of that is a healing that's bigger than our own selfish, all of us wanting to be 100% healthy and have three kids, and et cetera, et cetera, all the things we want. There's a bigger picture. And everything else has to obey those laws. And I think in the long run, we have to obey them too because we're seeing what happens when we veer away from those laws as far as we have. Things get way out of balance and nobody benefits, especially us or including us. Something that maybe should have been put uh, when we were talking about isolating chemicals, but there can be different dosages of this uh, herbal whatever medicine. Um, and the experience with the plant. So would you want to talk about uh, poison versus being medicine? I didn't really have a lot to say about it. Like I said, I don't consider myself an herbalist. I don't get into the habit of making medicines very often. Uh, about as complex as I get usually is like chewing up a plant poultice or making a tea. Um, but I have heard it said that the difference between medicine and poison is dosage. Hmm. So consider that. If you hear about a poisonous plant, um, there might be a use for it. Tom Brown also says the only difference between a plant and a weed is our ignorance of its uses. Hmm. Um, or its gifts, as I would like to say. But that's a big, um, I don't know, part of thinking about plants is that they all might have a gift that we might not know yet. I don't know of any medicinal use for poison hemlock and water hemlock. They're just too powerfully dangerous. And maybe um, maybe that is part of their healing. When is death not part of the healing? Um, so, yeah, you want to take it from there, Teresa? <laughs> I thought you were going to uh, continue with that thought. I think I lost the trail of it. Oh. Well, I'll say... Um, I've read some books recently, Black Elk Speaks and uh, John Lane Deer, a medicine man, also from the Lakota tradition. Um, and in both books, it was mentioned that there's medicines that have been forgotten because there was a genocide of the indigenous people um, of this land. And it's so sad to me to think that there were people that came before us who had interacted with things whether it was plant, animal, clouds, I mean, there was different. There were different medicines that we don't know about today because that lineage is gone. And uh, so I just, I really wanted to share that because I feel like it's so important to learn and experience what plants have to offer because that plant might go extinct before we even get to know it. And I'm not saying just to use it in uh, medication to cure cancer or whatever, but just to get to know that species before it's gone. So, yeah. Yeah, and I'd say, uh, you know, in lieu of, of death being the enemy, um, I think that's something our culture teaches. It keeps us afraid of our mortality and of death. Um, but I don't think that's the natural state of things. I think we hold on to our lives. I feel the plant hold on to its root when I uproot it. Its roots hug the ground. I can tell it wants to live. It values its life, just like I value mine. And I think life is precious in its brevity, in its mortality. Um, I think we are totally looking at death the wrong way. We're fighting the wrong fight. The fight is not for there to be more of us who live longer. The fight is to make the quality of our lives better to focus on life. When we clutch at life like a possession, we've objectified every damn thing on the earth, including life itself, the whole way we hold and live our lives. We've turned it into a thing that the longer we can keep it safe and the longer we can make it last, the better it must be. And it's not true. So that's another thing I consider with the big picture of plant medicine and medicines in general is death I see as a transition. And there's just too much of this beautiful biomass that's in human form right now. Um, part of the giving back, I think, is that biomass. There's an, a finite amount of biomass on the earth. So 
Quinn talks about this. When people start growing food just for people, what does it turn into? It turns into human people. It goes into human biomass. We're converting all the diverse biomass of our planet into human biomass. We're killing the diversity just by being a huge population. That kind of blew my mind when I first thought about that. So another thing to consider about what do we mean by medicine? Mm-hmm. And I know I'm jumping around here, Teresa. Is there, was that pretty much where we're like, kind of winding up generally? Yeah, pretty much winding up. Um, I was going to share a story, but I think I'll just pass on that and wrap it up. Yeah, and I just wanted to say that we are we just made it into Maine today. Um, we've been heading through New England, and it's been uh, like a lot of ups and downs and like great things about like these uh, New England states and then other things that we miss about being down south. Um, but yeah, one of the things I'm liking is apparently there's this god-awful circle of fire they're calling it down south in Texas, <laughs> like what they call it, searing heat. Yeah. So I am very thankful to be in Maine where we're pretty much on the beach or were earlier at 82 degrees. Um, and the ocean was so freaking cold that it burned my skin, but it was delicious. <laughs> So I'm feeling very thankful for that. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I'm thankful that this podcast is just at an hour. So if, uh, if you haven't already, check out our website, escapingsociety.weebly.com. Um, it has some of our latest YouTube videos, which I'm hoping to get more of the plants that we mentioned um, to get videos up there. It also has our blog and a... Uh, contact form where you can send us any questions you have or comments and i think that's it yeah we'll see you next week thanks